will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my lips, and on my lips, on my tongue, in my mouth. I give him all the praise. How many of you happy to be in the house of the Lord today? Has the Lord not been good to you this morning? How many of you are thankful to the Lord this morning? That you have your sins forgiven, your slate washed clean, eternity ahead. We are together, a united body in Jesus Christ. So many reasons this morning to be glad. Amen. You could go ahead and be seated. God bless you. My name is Pastor Kareem Smith, and I'm privileged to serve over the Forever Young Senior Adult Ministry here at Grace Church. And it is a, an honor to be in the house of the Lord to share with you the Word of God. Earlier, I uh, made a deal with the first congregation, and I let them know right ahead there's some bad news. And the bad news is that I have 3,500 words to share with y'all this morning. The good news is I may have you out here in 35 minutes if I get an amen or two in the midst of this message. Well, before we begin, I do want to honor a family here this morning. Uh, is David and Jillian Schaefer, along with Stephen here. Are you here in the house today? If you're here, right, stand up. Let us know that you're here. Are they not here? The Schaefer family? Not here? Well, the Schaefer family, they're actually on their way to Bangalore. Oh, there he is. There he is. You late, brother. I'm supposed to be praying for you. Where you at, man? <laughs> but no, this is a great family. Uh, they're all headed to bung the Bungalow Hospital, uh, which is a CMA hospital in West Africa, uh, in particular the Gabon nation of West Africa, and uh, they're actually undergoing some turmoil right now in that country. Uh, but this family is headed there September the 15th, where they're going to go and serve in a hospital together as uh, ministering servants of Jesus Christ. And so let's give them a hand of praise for what they're doing and sacrificing themselves to go overseas. Amen. So now, as I alluded to earlier, I have very few minutes uh, left to share with you. I got a, a very um, important message to share with you uh, from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And so uh, before we begin, how about we just go ahead and pray. Father, thank you so much uh, for the privilege and the honor that exists that is mine to uh, preach and declare the truth of your word. Father, I pray that you would lift me up uh, during this sermon, give me the strength that I need to communicate clearly what is in your word so that the church may be united even more strongly, Lord, at the end of this day and be stronger, uh, more passionate worshipers of Jesus Christ as a result. We do give you the praise for everything that will be said and done in this church today. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. Uh, to those of you tuning in live, uh, those at Olmstead Falls and those at the Lorraine Correctional Institution, I want to thank you for joining in uh, today's service. God bless you, and may you be richly satisfied in the Lord from today's message. Now, we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. Is that all right? Oh, hold on now. Y'all know I like feedback, right? <laughs> now, we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. Is that all right? All right. So what I want to do is there's going to be the words on the screen, and I want y'all to follow along. We're going to do a responsive reading of today's opening text. We used to do that back in the day. If you Baptist, y'all know what I'm talking about. And so the words, we're going to start off in verse 23, I believe it is, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I'll read verse 23 and 24. You guys read verse 25, and then together we come and we conclude with verse 26. Is that all right? All right, all right. So we're going to begin with verse 23, 
The Bible says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That's good. And all together, verse 26, for whoever eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, hearing, and the doing of his word. So this morning, I want to talk to you from the subject, how not to ruin a good meal. How not to ruin a good meal. Today in a word devotion dated June 1992, it recounts the meeting of the American Psychological Association uh, where Jack Lipton, a psychologist at Union College, and R. Scott Billion, a graduate student at Columbia University, uh, together they presented their findings on how uh, various sections of a major symphony orchestra all perceived one another as they led in the orchestra. The percussionists were viewed as insensitive and unintelligent and hard of hearing. String players seen as arrogant, stuffy, and unathletic. They all chose loud to describe the brass players while the woodwind players were held in the highest esteem as they were described as quiet and meticulous, though a bit egotistical. Uh, interesting findings to say the least, but with such widely divergent personalities and perceptions, one might ask how an orchestra like this could ever come together and make beautiful and harmonious music. One might ask how could they ever come together and make wonderful and joyful sounds, and the answer is quite simple, and that is that regardless of how this orchestra and the musicians felt towards one another, and regardless of how they viewed each other, they all subordinated their feelings and biases to the leadership of the conductor. You see, under the guidance of the conductor, together this orchestra could play beautiful and harmonious music. Under the guidance of the conductor, they exchanged their discord for harmony and a sense of oneness. Well, I think it's safe to say, ladies and gentlemen, that the God you and I serve is a stickler for oneness and unity. Uh, just look at the creation around us. The entire universe sings a harmonious melody and tune. Uh, within the Godhead, Trinity, we understand that God eternally exists with three eternal persons. All three persons are God, yet you and I are mystified by the fact that God is one. A simple glance through the New Testament, and you see this theme of oneness and unity strung throughout the entire New Testament. Uh, Jesus and his high priestly prayer prays that the believers in Jesus Christ might be one. He says in verse 21 of chapter 17 of John, he says this. He says that all of them may be one in his prayer. He says that all of them may be, may be one, Father, just as you are in me, I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Make no mistake about it. In Jesus' prayer, he prays something powerful. What he prays, in essence, 
is that believers from every walk of life, that means believers from every tribe, every tongue, every culture, and every race, believers from every sex and every nationality, in fact, divided people groups from across this globe would somehow miraculously be transformed into a beautiful mosaic of oneness within the very union of Christ himself within Jesus himself. This is what he prays for, that you and I may find our oneness and unity in him. That's a powerful thing to pray. But I want you to know that Jesus doesn't just pray this prayer independent of his power to pull it off. Jesus himself provides the means to achieve this oneness by laying his life down as a sacrifice for sins so that by faith in his death and resurrection, you and I may be a new community called the church. And this is the message that he's called you and I, you and me, to proclaim to a lost and dying world. That message being that on that cross, Jesus' blood-stained body was sacrificed in order to satisfy God's wrath while simultaneously solidifying you and me into new community. What an awesome God we serve. What an awesome Savior we have. And this is a message that he's called, called us to preach and proclaim, but guess what? This message got lost in translation when it came to this Corinthian church, I'm here to tell you. Because what we just read is a ceremonial reciting of Jesus' last words at the Last Supper, but don't get it twisted. I know often we hear these words read at every communion service, or if you want to call it a Eucharist, it really doesn't matter. Eucharist means thanksgiving. Communion is all about communing with God and communing with one another. But don't get it twisted. We recite these words at every communion service. And if we're not careful, familiarity can breed contempt. Because you need to understand that these words that are often recited at a communion service are sandwiched between a severe rebuke on one hand and a stern warning to the Corinthian church on the other. You see, by now, you probably know, we've been in this series now for a couple of months, the Corinthian church was a hot mess. Y'all know they, they had some problems, didn't they? Uh, they had all kind of issues or issues. <laughs> this church is established by the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey. And he planted this church together with a couple of friends of his, and together they go into this, re this region which was a melting pot of cultural diversity. I mean, the region where they planted this church was an affluent society. Uh, it was filled with progressive thinkers and vast polarization. Imagine planting a church smack dab in the middle of New York City. That would have been like where Corinth was planted. And Paul, he spends a whole year and a half planting this church, and then he leaves. But after he leaves, soon after his departure, he gets word that there's trouble in paradise. Uh, various factions had formed and disagreements amongst the body. And there were petty rivalries and even popularity contests. And so Paul addresses these concerns as a response to a letter he received from them asking various questions about particular matters. Last week, Pastor Jonathan reminded us of the various warnings that sprinkled throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. And in chapter 1 through 4, he addressed those factions and divisions that seemed to plague the Corinthian church, and they seemed to rear their ugly head right here again in chapter 11. Divisions. <laughs> And what Paul takes issue with them over in chapter 11 is more related to their corporate worship. 
In particular, he's making a case against their mannerisms at the Lord's table because it was these mannerisms that misrepresented the gospel. A little background to help us understand. It's already been mentioned, the context where this church was planted. Again, don't forget, the culture that existed around this church was fractured. It was a fractured society that was divided along economic lines. They were divided along cultural lines. They were divided socially and political. I mean, there was all sorts of division, but that wasn't the main problem for the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church main problem had to do with how do you prevent the polarization outside from bleeding over into our worship? That was the challenge for this church. In other words, how do you prevent the culture wars going on around us from causing us to form tribes and causing us to form cliques and causing us to form divisions, erecting walls of discord? How do we prevent that from happening in our church? And unfortunately, the Corinthian church failed at this miserably. Uh, they couldn't understand how to keep this from happening. They let their social norms of the day dictate their behavior and their love towards one another. And so it all came to a head in the worst possible place, that being the table of the Lord. The irony here being that this very meal that was meant to be a display of unity and harmony and respect in the body of Christ instead became an opportunity for division and disrespect and all types of biases. And so Paul, the apostle Paul, levels with this church and he says, you know what? Y'all being judged for that. You can't do that. That's not the body of Christ. You're being judged for that. Now it's at this point that I wish I could say that this is one of those rare sections in the Bible that ain't got nothing to do with us. <laughs> Ain't got nothing to do with you and me, the church. But the truth be told, this passage, ladies and gentlemen, it specifically relates to the American church. Because unless you've been hidden under a rock these last few years, you and I know that the church of Christ has had a love affair with this world like never before. And we have been divided over many different things, and it's the usual suspects. We're divided over politics. We're divided over race. The church is divided over identity politics. We're divided over denominational divides and divided over polity and gender roles. We're divided over wokeness. The church in America is divided and it almost seems as though the American church is in the midst of a holy war with itself. And so serious is this subject from the Apostle Paul that he has to level with them by saying that if you think you can come to the table of the Lord with that mess, then you got another thing coming. He says, if you think you can come to the table of the Lord having partisan division and you think you can come with uh, sowing seeds of disrespect and discord within the body and this loveless, this lovelessness going on, no, you got another thing coming. Don't expect to come to the table and be blessed. Instead, expect to be judged. That's pretty much Paul's thesis statement. Not one we want to hear, but it nevertheless applies across the board. And so the question could be raised for you and me, how do we as a church family partake of communion today in a way that avoids God's discipline? There's a lot you got to learn on this. I'm going to break it down for you. 
But how do we partake together as one body in a way that honors the gospel? Well, if you follow me into verse 17, Paul says the first thing we need to know is that we need to first of all realize and recognize that there's a problem. He says in verse 17, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. See, Paul's just, he's just taking it straight to him right there. He says, I believe that y'all got some stuff going on in your church today, and it's causing uh, the judgment of God. He says, your meetings are doing more harm than good. Well, the question is, what meetings does Paul have in mind here? Well, in the first century, we realized that it was customary for churches to get together and have fellowship. And when churches got together and had fellowship, often the fellowship happened in people's homes. And these house churches, if you will, would be the center point and the center place for their worship and their fellowship together. I mean, and they couldn't wait to get together. There was no such thing in the first century as a bedside Baptist. Some of y'all get that later. They slow. There was no such thing as a live stream where you can just tune in to service because you just didn't feel like coming to church in the morning. Come on, somebody. <laughs> There was no such thing as these conveniences, and even if they were, to them in the first century, that idea would have seemed to them absurd because they loved the fellowship. They loved to get together. And often when they got together, guess what would happen? They would break bread together. Their fellowship would culminate into a luxurious meal. It was a gorgeous, it was a spread. I mean, it was like a great big potluck, like forever young. This Saturday, 5 p.m., those of you 50 and up. Yeah, I had to throw that in there. <laughs> but notice it's an example laid out for us in Acts chapter 2, which describes this fellowship, that all the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had need, and every day they continued to meet together. Can you see this fervency? and this love for one another. They couldn't be separated. They loved each other. And it was just every single day they had to get together. And so, uh, but they didn't only get together. They practiced love when they got together. Now, how did they do that? By the breaking of bread and communion. You see, communion was a message of love and inclusion. When they broke this bread and they got together, it was a message of equality and oneness in the body. But the problem with the Corinthian church was that of privilege. And they didn't want to give that up for their communion service and their fellowship meals. In the Corinthian church, it pretty much broke down between the haves and the have-nots. It was the wealthy against the poor and all sorts of other cultural divides that separated this church from one another. You see, some in the Corinthian church were stuck up and their self-absorbed hedonism uh, that led them to seek security in their own comforts and led them to seek security in their high-class cliques and their high-class social clubs, and they wanted to preserve these comforts at all costs. They didn't want to give up their privilege. Pastor Kajavius, I consider him a sage amongst the staff at Grace Church. 
And the reason for that is because every now and then, Pastor Kajavius, he'll, he'll come alongside you and he'll share a wise word of advice or some sort of proverb or something like that. And a couple weeks ago, Pastor Kajavius shared this thought with me and I want to share with you. He says this, he says, when, when you are accustomed to privilege for such a long time, equality can feel like oppression. I said, they're going to get that after the second time I say it, Pastor Kajavius. He says, when you are accustomed to privilege for, the, for such a long time, equality can feel like oppression. And to the Corinthian church, these believers, equality to them felt oppressive. And that became most apparent at their love feasts. Because what happened was whenever they would get together, I want you to know that it was more or less the privileged saints who had all the money and they had all the clout and they had all the respect and it would pretty much be up to them to host these love feasts in their own homes. And whenever the privileged would get together and they would host these love feasts within their homes, the first thing they would do is invite the people on their friends list first. Which meant all the people that arrived first were more likely wealthy and of, of, a, of a different social class. It's not that the poor weren't invited, it's just that the disadvantages that came with being poor and the disadvantages that came with, let's say, being a woman or being a slave during that time prevented them from even arriving on time. And oftentimes when they got there, the food would be all ate up and alcohol all gone. Yeah, they drank wine in the first century and that was all drank up. And they got there and they was being disrespected. The poor would get there, they were being overlooked and it was the ultimate form of discrimination. And the more bougie saints didn't seem to care. In fact, you get the sense from Paul's tone in this letter that their neglect of the poor, coupled together with their smug attitudes of indifference, it was probably even done intentionally in order to make some folks feel unwelcome. This church was a hot mess. And they wanted to make the poor and make, the, make everybody else feel unwelcome. And so if you look at verse 19, notice Paul levels with them again. He says this. He says, no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you even has God's approval. When you come together, it's not the Lord's supper you eat. He says, there's no doubt there have to be differences among you. The word differences here can be translated factions or disputes. There have to be factions and disputes among you to show which of you actually uh, have God's approval because it's assumed that those who were not complicit in this type of behavior would be the actual believers in Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, look, there has to be these factions going on. Think in terms of schisms along tribal lines. And hopefully you're beginning to see just why egregious, well, how egregious this was to Paul. He's not taking them to task just simply because of bad manners. And he's not taking them to task because of poor table etiquette and you didn't set the fork right on this side. Or you didn't, no, it's not about that. Paul is rebuking this church because their biases and abuses threaten the very core of the gospel. And you don't want to mess with that. Paul says, I can't praise y'all for that because your meetings are doing more harm than good. It's not the Lord's supper you eat, Paul says, when you segregate yourself from the body. It's not the Lord's supper you eat when you mistreat the poor. It's not the Lord's supper you eat when you prefer factions over fellowship. 
It's not the Lord's Supper we eat when we prefer politics that pull us apart. No. Paul says, notice, this is not the Lord's Supper. This is your own thing. This is your own thing. And notice how repugnant they were about it. I mean, they was pigging out right in front of the board. Look at verse 21. <laughs> for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody. And one remains hungry. Another gets drunk as a skunk and toe up from the flow up and uh, just blitzed. And I mean, what's wrong with y'all? Is what Paul said. Can you understand? Can you believe what's happening? He's saying it's not the Lord's Supper. Look at you. You're doing it all chaotically and out of order. What was supposed to be the Lord's Supper ended up being a humiliating show of shame and disrespect to the least of these in the body. And here's the point for you and me. Ladies and gentlemen, we cannot worship the Lord at the table of communion if we ignore the unity of the church. We can't do it. That's what this passage is all about our union in Jesus Christ. And anything that is opposed to that is a threat to God's, to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. We cannot worship Jesus at the table of communion while ignoring the unity of the church. That's why Paul says, it's not the Lord's supper you eat. You're doing your own thing by prioritizing your own cliques. And Paul says, we can't have that in the church. And the question I have for you this morning is how is your heart attitude towards those who are different from you? <laughs> Do you find yourself pulling away from other believers who may not fit within your categories? Can we still have fellowship if you're suburban and I'm city? If you're black and I'm white, if you're Asian and I'm uh, maybe Hispanic, can we still have fellowship if you're a Republican and I'm a Democrat? Can we still have fellowship? Can we still meet at this table today? Can we still have fellowship if we differ on church polity issues? If not, ladies and gentlemen, our meetings are doing more harm than good. We got to get it right. You know, if you ever want to tick God off, tamper with the unity of his church. God don't play when it comes to his church. And notice, that's where we're going next. Paul wants to remind them and get them to reflect upon the implications of this division going on. In verse 27, Paul says, as we skip down, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, underline that word, those two words, unworthy manner, will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Verse 28, a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks the cup. For anyone who eats, of the, eats and drinks without recognizing or discerning the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on themselves. Ooh-wee! Paul ain't playing today, is he? Oh, yeah, yeah. Right away, we see that communion ain't no joke. We ought to approach the table today with a level of caution and, and holiness and reverence. But notice that the word unworthy here, how it can be translated. This word for unworthy could actually be translated unworthily in verse 27. So in other words, this verse literally could read like this. Whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood. This raises a couple of questions for us today. The first question is, what does it mean to eat and drink unworthily? 
And the second is like it. What does it mean to discern the body of the Lord? Now, traditionally, we've kind of divided over this and isolated this verse from the rest of the context in chapter 11. What do I mean by that? A lot of times when we approach communion, we approach it and we give these warnings out. And they're sort of based upon Christian moralism. In other words, if you say, you know, if you have sin in your life, then perhaps you should let the elements pass. Or if you was out at the club last night and you're just walking in, maybe you should let the, if you happen to be a Browns fan, (laughs) then perhaps you should let the elements pass. So we've isolated this and made it into sort of a Christian moralism type thing. Others take the extreme view that unworthy here means to treat the elements themselves with irreverence and disrespect, uh, meaning you have to, when you come to the table, you have to recognize that the elements that we partake, the bread and the cup, these literally transform into the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Our Catholic friends take this view It's a view known as the doctrine of transubstantiation, meaning that when we take these elements, they transform into the literal, actual body and the blood of Jesus Christ, and it imparts a measure of saving grace in our lives. But uh, I differ from that because I don't see that anywhere in the Bible. And furthermore, most Protestants, we view this as more of a memorial. When we come together, when we take communion, it's more of a memorial where the presence of Jesus, yes, he's here, but it's more or less in a spiritual sense. That's another argument for another day. Suffice to say, we keep this context in mind. Don't lose me here. The greater theme of this passage has to do with factions, disputes, and abuses within the body of Jesus Christ. And so to eat the bread and to drink the cup unworthily must have something to do with what's going on in this text. It must have something to do with the lovelessness that this Corinthian church is practicing towards one another. In other words, we have to recognize that you and I, ladies and gentlemen, we are an interconnected people. What affects one affects us all. Let me say that again. You and I are one. We are an interconnected people group. What affects one of us affects us all. And no other religion on the face of this earth can lay such a claim. No other faith can literally unite former enemies into one body. No other faith. No other faith can transform sinners into saints, turn enemies into friends, turn strangers into brothers, and turn adversaries into allies. Only Jesus Christ can do that. Only Jesus. And so no matter how much we try to protest, how much we don't like each other, we might as well get along because we stuck together. And that's a good thing because it glorifies God. And so therefore, to eat and drink the cup unworthily and without recognizing the body must mean to ignore that common oneness that you and I have in Jesus Christ. You see, see, believers are not just connected to Christ by faith. You and I are connected to one another through love. That's Paul's message. Interconnectedness, union in Jesus Christ, oneness and harmony in the Lord through love. This is further supported by 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. Notice what Paul says here. He says, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? By the way, participation 
comes from the Greek word koinonia, which is where we get our English word fellowship from. And so it's not the cup of thanksgiving that we give thanks a fellowship together in the blood of Jesus. And it's not the bread that we break, a sharing or a participation in the body of Christ. Because there was one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. <laughs> it's about oneness. It's about our unity in Jesus Christ. And in case you didn't know, that's why we call it communion in the first place. Communion stands for our common union in Christ, and it's our common union in Christ that reflects the core message of the gospel. And I'm here to tell somebody today that if you desecrate that common union in, with divisions, and if you substitute that oneness with hate, guess what? We always stand to invoke the judgment of God. That's Paul's message. We stand to invoke judgment. But don't take my word for it. Take what God says himself, what Jesus said, what, what the Lord says himself. Look at verse 30. Paul says, that's why many of y'all are weak. Many of you are sick. And a number of you have even fallen asleep. But if we judge or discern for ourselves, we would not come under judgment. If we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not come be condemned with the rest of the world. This here is some heavy stuff, y'all. I know. I know. Because what Paul pretty much says in this section is when it comes to the table of the Lord, check yourself lest you wreck yourself. Check yourself. God disciplines those he loves. And Paul says these weaknesses, you look at the form of discipline that Paul uses that he says is going on in this church. Paul says that this, there's an outbreak of something going on. It was weaknesses, sickness, and death. Sound to me like a pandemic. Sound an awful lot like a pandemic to me. Weaknesses, sickness, and death. No doubt about it, it was a health crisis that seemed abnormal to Paul. And Paul, with a prophetic sense of discernment, he picks up on this pattern and he associates their ongoing divisions together with this pattern of distress breaking out in their church. And he says, this is happening because of your divide. This is the judgment of God. Now, this wouldn't have been the first instance in the Bible where God chose to use a form of discipline that even included death for a church member. It's not a normative thing uh, to describe in the book of Acts, but we know the famous story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 where God disciplined them because they uh, shunned themselves from the rest of the body and they hoarded their finances and they had apathy and indifference towards one another and, and so they died right there in full view of the entire church. Now that's an extreme view and again, that's not a normal thing to happen but the Bible does affirm in Hebrews chapter 12 that God has the prerogative to discipline the church however and with whatever he chooses. The Lord disciplines those he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. Now, don't get me wrong now. I'm not saying, hear me now, that every plague and, and every distress and every sickness, every illness that goes on, that is related to some way in God's, to God's judgment of us. That's not what I'm saying. But if we're honest with ourselves, it's kind of hard to miss the parallel over these last few years 
between all of our tribalism and all of our trials and tribulations over the last few years. I mean, I'm here to tell somebody the American church today is undergoing an identity crisis. We're confused about who we are and confused about a sense of direction and confused about our allegiances, and I believe honestly that God is bringing that to bear through a form of discipline in this country. You might ask how. We've been weakened in many ways. Have you not noticed it? We've been weakened ever since COVID. We've been weakened in terms of numbers and influence. We've been weakened in terms of uh, weak, uh, credibility. We've been weakened in terms of integrity. The church has been weakened and even embattled sicknesses and diseases. When is the last time you ever thought in a million years that the church would have to close its doors because of a pandemic? Interestingly enough, that happened at the peak of our divisions when we were divided over so many different things, so many different things. It's hard to miss the connection between our grumblings and our grief, our strife, and our stresses in this land. And so Paul says, look, y'all need to check yourself. And so the question for us this morning is, is God trying to get our attention? <laughs> over maybe some abnormal things or afflictions going on in our lives. Is God trying to get your attention, to get you to wake up to your cynicism and your troublesome attitude towards other believers? Is God trying to get your attention? Do you demonize those who you deem to be too woke in this church? Or to put it another way, do you demonize those who you consider to be too privileged or too conservative or too Republican? Paul's saying, you know what? You better recognize that there is a problem and it needs reflecting upon because you cannot come to the table of the Lord with that attitude. You'll face discipline. You'll face discipline. But just like the Apostle Paul, he doesn't leave us without hope. I skipped over this, but we read it together. Verse 23, Paul pretty much says, you know what? Here's the solution for all. We can fix this thing. How many of you believe we can fix this thing? This division going on in, our, in the church, we can fix this thing, but we cannot fix it until we fix our eyes on Jesus first. And so Paul says we need to rediscover the foundation for our faith. In verse 23, Paul says, for I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In other words, what Paul is trying to get the Corinthian church to do is return back to the cross to find their, their form of unity at the base of the cross. He's saying, remember the cross. He's saying, are you all divided over this, that, and the other? These are idols. He says, come back to the cross. You know, I know the church has had its fair share of problems over the years, and we've had our fair share of troubles and all that, but we also have our fair share of promises in God's Word that should ignite hope in each one of us. See, first of all, Paul reminds them of the source of the tradition that he hands down to them. Paul says, I didn't hand this thing down to you from the world. He says, I didn't get this tradition called communion. I didn't get this from any elitist social group or a pagan political party. He says, I received this tradition from the Lord, and what I received from the Lord, I now pass down to you. And the, what he received from the Lord and passed down was the gospel message of Jesus Christ. See, communion is a testament to the gospel. That's why this is so important to Paul. 
And Paul takes them back to the very beginning to remind them of that fact. How does he take them back? He takes them back to the beginning by getting them to reflect upon the night that Jesus was betrayed. He says, when, when Jesus was betrayed, that was a dark night, y'all. You know, the night that he was betrayed, it was a night of intense sorrow. The night that Jesus was betrayed was a night of severe stress as anxiety gripped his soul. And the night Jesus was betrayed, he stared death down in the face knowing that it would save you and me. And Jesus looked forward to the cross on the night he was betrayed, looking forward to taking on God's wrath for you and me. Jesus didn't die for an individual. Jesus died for a church. And he did this on the night he was betrayed. And he didn't die for a political party. He didn't die for no racial category. And with full knowledge of what would soon take place, Jesus takes the bread, he gives thanks, he breaks it, and he says to the church, this is my body, which is for you. Now, don't you ever forget what I'm getting ready to do for you. This is what Jesus did for us. This is what the bread means. This is what the wine means. It means our oneness and inclusion. Because what he's getting ready to do is go to the cross for you and me. And at the cross, Jesus' broken body was shed on that cross. His blood was spilled on that cross. And with agony, he cried out to his own father on that cross, my God, my God, why has you forsaken me? Realizing that he had to be forsaken and he had to be ignored and he had to face the scorn, the mockery, and the contempt of the cross because had he not faced it, you and I would be stuck in our sins. This describes the night that Jesus was betrayed. This is what he had to look forward to. And so as he takes the cup and as he takes the bread, he has in mind what he's getting ready to do. And what Jesus was getting ready to do was make all things new. <laughs> look at verse 25. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. In other words, Jesus is making all things new. He's making all things new by making all of us one. Where there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, uh, female or male, uh, we're all one in Christ Jesus. And so we say together, when we take communion today, we say thank you, Lord. We say thank you because of the testimony that you and I share in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that testimony is quite clear. In verse 23, 26, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, Paul says something powerful is happening. When you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to take communion today with honor and respect for not just what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross, but what he did for you too. And so all of us, when we take communion today, have in mind, not just Jesus, but have in mind your fellow brother and sister in Christ, because he brought us all together and made all of us one. And our harmony and oneness in the body makes a statement to the watching world around us that there is power, power, wonderful working power in the blood of the lamb, Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 you pray with me? Father, we thank you for uh, the words that you give us today as a reminder, as a stern warning and a rebuke, but also with encouragement. 
that, Lord, you died to save sinners and unite sinners together as one. Thank you for this body of Christ. Lord, it's a reflection of diversity in this world. We see people black, white, Hispanic. We see Jews, Messianic Jews. We see all pe people from all different walks of life all culminating together in this house of the Lord to celebrate and worship Jesus. Thank you for the beauty of the cross. Thank you for the beauty of the gospel. And now, Lord, as we transition into communion, we remember, Lord, that night on the cross, on that night when you were looking death down, staring death in the face, Lord, you had each of us in mind. Communion is not about individuals. It's about our collective union as one in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And now as the servers make their way down, I want to do something different today. Since communion is about our fellowship and our oneness, I want you to hold on to the bread. But rather than taking that bread individually, keep this in mind. The person sitting next to you, I want you to reach out, maybe hold their hand, touch their shoulder. As we partake of these elements, we're going to partake together as one body in Jesus today. And so hold on to those elements as we sing and praise to the Lord.